Well, if you're new or visiting, my name's Tyler, and I'm one of the pastors here at the Austin Stone. If you have a Bible, go and open up the book of Hebrews, or have one of our study guides. Um, we're continue on in our study of this book. And so here's what we do if you're new or visiting. Every single Sunday, we gather around the Bible because God speaks through these recorded words passed down to us. And so, so far in this New Testament letter that's written, it was written to a collection of first century Jewish Christians We've learned a lot of things so far. We've learned that there's a God who speaks, that he speaks and he created all things and he holds all things together, that he made measurable forces like gravity and unseen beings called angels, that he's made supernovas and he's made humanity to bear his image. See, this book that we're studying is not a book that's reserved for religious services. Actually, it's teaching you, it's opening your eyes to these Honestly, these wonderful, these grand, these realities that are bigger than us, that we're caught up in, these heights of glory and these depths of darkness that are all around us. But if we're honest, it can be difficult to really grasp these lofty concepts and commands and promises that the Bible talks about because our lives frankly feel quite different. Like, think about your week-to-week, normal, everyday experience. Our lives, what our experience, our human experience, most of the time is very earthy and tactile. Like, most of our weeks are very earthy and tactile. Like, think about this week, what filled your conversations? Like, what filled my conversations? Most of the time is we're talking about plans that we may or may not make. We're talking about people we may or may not like. We're stressing about money or relationships we may or may not have. We're imagining who we could be one day or we're fearful about who we will be one day and all the in-between. Like even for me, I was thinking about this last couple of weeks. What what have Lauren and I, my wife, what have we talked about most? And honestly, what me and Lauren have talked about most is a bird. And this bird, he's a cool bird, this bird He has, or she, let's be clear, she has built her nest with new, just baby eggs on a wreath on our front door. And this bird has so dominated my life, I am knocking on the door before I open it so the bird can leave. Because Lauren has given me specific instructions, we are here to care for this bird, okay? And what has happened is late one night, this bird, I opened the door, I forgot to knock, my bad, he, she flew into the house. And this bird is up on the top of my ceiling, and you know how you feel big, bad, and brave if you're around? It's it's, The bird's this big. And at one point in time, I'm telling Lauren, like, we're trying everything we know to do to get this bird out of our house. It's 11.45 on the night. It was springing forward, by the way. So I'm like, it's 12.45 in my mind, and I'm like, Lauren, I'm going to have to kill it. That's what I'm going to have to do. We had this whole conversation about ethics of caring for animals. It was a great conversation at 12.45. And so we have this conversation, and finally, and I'm feel, I'm, my anger is building up, and I'm like, I'm going to get this bird out of my house. You have never heard me shriek more than when that bird flew at me. You feel super strong, so I'm having to get this giant sheet and be a sheet monster of sorts going, and trying to get this bird out of my house. And we have, and this bird, guess what? It's doing fine. It's still in our front door. And I'm thinking about me and Lauren. These are the kind of conversations we've been having about. Literally, I, we, last night we talked again about this bird. I hope she's doing great this morning. Now, these are the kind of like, that's a silly sort of thing. But that's what me and Lauren have talked about a lot the last two weeks. We talked about more than just that, obviously. But you have all these sort of like real silly or important or stressful like experiences. 
And it's tactile, and you can understand it, and you can make decisions around it, and you can think about your life and all the things that you do. And then we come to this book that talks about angels and talks about God holding all things together, and it can seem almost like it's detached from our real lives. Almost like, what, how does my little life have any relationship to these grand realities the Bible describes? And here's my fear for Christians. Here's my fear for us, is that we begin to train ourselves secretly to believe that God and the scriptures really make the most sense in church spaces. That God and all that he has to say, it makes more sense when I'm doing a Bible study. That you can be in worship and love the way you feel, but if you are honest, you're unsure how your work or your responsibilities or your hobbies or your passions or your dreams for your life have anything to do with the things that we're learning about the kingdom of God. And this is what Sundays are. Sundays are designed for you and I, for the church, and any in our city who wants to learn more about who Jesus is. Sundays are meant to be a day for us to rest. They're meant to be a day for us to kind of reorient, to center, to slow down and worship God. Today, Sundays for the church are not a detachment from reality. Here's what Sundays are meant to be. They're meant to be a slowing down to soak in what is most true about reality. Like if you're a Christian, I sincerely hope that you have planned your Sundays in such a way where Sunday is a Sabbath rest for you. That Sunday is a time when you don't work and you achieve very little. And you slow down, and I hope that our Sunday morning gatherings of corporate prayer and songs and sermons centered around the the word of God as the spirit of God works in and through all those elements, and that it kicks off a day for you where you slow down, where you reorient, where you remember, wait, who am I? Who is God? What is the calling on my life? For you to train your, today is meant to be a day to train yourself. What does it mean to bask in the love of God? What does it mean to rely on him in all of your life to achieve very little today? Like, I hope you take a Sunday nap and it's glorious today. Hopefully not during this sermon, but later, right? That you rest and you go, I didn't achieve anything today and God still loved me. You're like, that's what it feels like to be in his kingdom. That's what's most true about you. So I hope today is the day where you are reorienting your heart after however your week was, that every Sunday becomes this rhythm for you to bask in his grace and rely on him in all of your life. So today we're in Hebrews 2, 5 through 10, and we're going to read it to get our hearts ready because here's another thing. God's coming to you today with his word. He's saying, here is who I am. Soak in this. Learn this. Follow this. So here's what his word says, Hebrews 2, 5 through 10. For it was not to angels... That God subjected the world to come of which, we, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting 
that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons and daughters to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So three points from this text today. Our larger story, the current tension of Christian faith, and the fitting resolution. So first point, our larger story. So verse uh, five it says, for it was not, there's two important themes that are brought up right at verse five. Not to angels that God submitted the world to come. These two phrases, not, uh, not to angels, the world to come. This passage is bringing back up topics the writer has already dealt with in this letter. So angels, which have been prominent already in this letter, are referenced again here in verse five. But he references them to say these are not the ones, these important angelic beings are not the ones that God is subjecting the world to. And he uses this phrase the world to come. And this is bringing back up this thing he opened up the letter with, is this idea of we're in the last days. Now, last days is not meant for the church to inspire dread, but to inspire hope. Last days means God's almost done with his work. We're almost home. And the writer, then in verse six, begins to quote. I love the writer says, it has been testified somewhere. So if you're, ever, if you're ever the person like, I don't know where it says this in the Bible, but I know it says this, the writer just did it. Somewhere in the Bible it says, you know what I'm talking about, right? He's actually quoting Psalm 8. So you don't have to know chapter and verse, just know what the Bible says. He quotes Psalm 8 because he's beginning to talk about this world to come, this God's vision for his creation and his image bearers to rule over it. The, the Psalm 8 is this beautiful poem where David is describing the glory God gave to creation, the wonder he gave to creation, and the, he's in awe of the fact, how could God, who made all of this, put it under, in submission to, in dominion of humanity? So I want to read to you the psalm he's quoting from in Psalm 8, 1 through 9. This is the entire psalm. He's quoting from this, because something about the vision that God has for humanity and the world, he needs us, he wants us to know. So it says this, Psalm 8, verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, How majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings crowned and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the fields and the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This psalm is explaining to us why do human beings, no matter what your belief set, no matter your religion, no matter your culture, why is it you can't help but sense that life matters? Why is it you can't help but have a sense that creation is this wondrous thing? Why is it you can't help but sense if I don't have a purpose, I begin to wilt as a person, I begin to erode as a person? Why is it? Because God's name is in all the earth. Whether you believe in him or not, his name is in all the earth. So human beings can't help but sense there's something wonderful happening here even in the darkness. And in Psalm 8, he begins to tell us the role of humanity is to take dominion of creation in such a way that humanity and creation would flourish together. This is why your work matters. 
This is why your vocation matters. Because God made human beings to work, to tend his creation. Do you know how often I have taught my children when we are raking leaves together and I say, hey, and they hate every second of it. They hate me every second of it. And I go, hey, guys, hey, this is what image bearers do. We work and tend to God's creation. And they're like, we hate work. And like, I get it. I get it. Sometimes it feels like raking leaves and you're not sure if it's ever going to end. But there's something really majestic about the fact that this is God's creation given to us. So your job matters. Your industry matters. Your home matters because God is using it to steward and tend to his creation. You were made with that sort of purpose, that sort of status. And that lofty vision of humanity and creation is essential for you to understand, if you're ever going to understand why the Bible talks about sin the way that it does, why sin crushes, the way, crushes us the way that it does, because until you know the glory that you were made for, you won't understand how egregious sin is. You can't understand how far we've fallen until you know the heights of glory you were made for. So Psalm 8 is the vision of what we're meant to be. This beautiful poem talking about the glory and dignity God bestowed on humanity to show you in stark contrast to our experience. That's not what life is like. It doesn't feel like that, but the psalmist is telling us, but it's true. Even though we've corrupted ourselves in this world with our selfishness and our godlessness, that's still God's vision for humanity. And it's worth noting that so far in the book of Hebrews, already in chapter 2, this is the writer's eighth direct quote of the Old Testament in this letter. So I want to tell you something about the Old Testament. It's really important you understand this, especially for some of us. I know the Old Testament can be clunky or cumbersome. We don't really know how to read it or understand it, but you have to know this. You cannot fully understand Jesus without knowing the Old Testament. And you can't fully understand the Old Testament until you know how it relates to Jesus. The Old Testament is building a worldview for us. It's providing clarity and boundaries and texture for who Jesus is and what he came to do. And now understand this. It's not that every single verse in the Old Testament is a one-to-one direct correlation to Jesus. Right? You're going to read certain verses you're like, I have no idea how the length of your hair has to do with Jesus. I have no idea how sowing certain seeds in the field has anything to do with Jesus. It's not a one-to-one connection, but what all, every verse is doing in the Old Testament, it is setting up expectations and defining norms and making claims that as they, they all begin to unlock as you fit them around the person of Jesus. They build this world that when Jesus shows up, you understand what he's doing and what he's saying, and the more specificity you have around who Jesus is, the better you can know him the better you can follow him and the better you can understand this larger story that God is writing to remake all things and put all things in its right place. So that's a larger story he hits at. It's not to angels the world is going to be submitted to. He quotes Psalm 8 and he shows us something really interesting in verse 8. Second point, the current tension of Christian faith. So Psalm 8, which he quotes It is originally pinned with humanity in mind, but the writer of Hebrews is going to show us that actually Psalm 8 is about Jesus. So in verse 7, he quotes from Psalm 8 directly. He says, and this is about humanity, you made him for a little while lower than the angels, you crowned him with glory and honor, clearly about humanity. But then in verse 9, the writer of Hebrews says, well, but we see him 
who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. He used the exact same phrase and applies it to Jesus. He's saying this, the real son of man who would have dominion over all things, the way it's talked about in Psalm 8, is actually the person of Jesus. That God the son, who's the exact imprint and character and nature of God the father, by the power of God the spirit, became a human being. A little lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor. Now, this, this connection is important, that you understand that Psalm 8 is fulfilled in Jesus. Psalm 8 is about humanity, and it's about Jesus ultimately. And the reason I highlight that connection for you, because I want to camp out on verse 8, because I want you to see the tension that we now live in because of it. Verse 8. So he's, he's quoting Psalm 8. He says, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Again, referencing to humanity, but now we know it's foreshadowing to Jesus. It says this, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. Speaking of Jesus. And at present, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. This tension, I need you to sit in it. God has placed everything in subjection to Jesus and at present, we don't yet see everything in subjection to him. If you will let yourself dwell in that tension for a second, I think it'll make sense of your experience following Jesus. And I think it'll make sense of if you're trying, to, if you're trying out Jesus, you're not, here, if you're not sure if you believe yet, I'm glad that you're here. It'll help you make sense of maybe the tension you feel in thinking about following Jesus. When it comes to his, him being in control and not all things being submitted to him yet, it is easy for us to minimize one by emphasizing the other. Because we want to minimize tension. We want more clarity than that, so we emphasize one over the other. So sometimes we'll focus on Jesus' authority and his control of all things because it's true. It's true. But then here's what easily happens, and I've seen it play out in the church over and over again. Because we're emphasizing Jesus' authority and control of all things, we will begin to downplay real pain and sorrow and evil that we go through, that others go through. Because we think if we highlight the brokenness around us too much, it will undermine God's sovereignty. As if the only way to hope in God is to be dishonest about how wrong everything can feel here. As if the only way to find hope is to be dishonest about how it can feel. And sometimes when we emphasize God's sovereignty to the expense of our experience, sometimes we're doing that because we're trying to make sense of how to, the Bible, we're trying to honor God, we're trying to love others, but I need you to know, sometimes we're doing it because we're trying to protect ourselves. We're trying to protect ourselves because we're terrified. We're terrified that if we're honest about how broken we can be, how broken the world can be, if we're honest about how often we don't see things in subjection to him, that if we're honest, what if we lose our faith in the process? If I tell the truth about my experience, what if my faith can't stand up to it? And so the good and right truth of Jesus' supreme authority can actually, by our own fault, become the grounds of our own dishonesty about what we see in front of us. 
We explain away awful things with trite Christian phrases because we don't know how to make sense of the tension. So that's one side. We'll emphasize his sovereignty and not our experience. But on the other side of it, we'll emphasize and focus on all that we don't see in subjection to Jesus. All the evil in the world around us because it's true. And yet we don't see everything in, in submission to him. But that, what happens if you focus on that, you'll begin to downplay the power and presence and wisdom of God in his word, in his church. Because we think and we're fearful that if we highlight God's sovereignty too much, then we will undermine the real pain in people's lives. As if the only way to be honest about how hard life can be requires us to be dishonest about God's presence and his promises in the midst of them. And sometimes, hear me, when we're focusing on all that's broken, we're trying our best to honor God. We're trying our best to love people. We're trying our best to make sense and call evil, evil. And that's right and good. But sometimes we'll do it because, truthfully, you're just trying to protect yourself. We're just trying to protect ourselves. Because deep down, we're terrified that if we hope again that God is good and that he's in control, that we may get hurt again. See, being a cynic is really a way to self-protect. It's a way to ensure that I've been hurt before and that will not happen again. So I'll emphasize all that's broken. And the truth of sin's corruption and ongoing evil, that's real, but that can become the grounds of our own hopelessness and despair and dishonesty about God's promises. Here's what this verse is telling you. Both are simultaneously true. Both are true at the same time. Jesus has all authority. He is seated at the right hand of God. And, and, and. We are, we are experiencing a world that is not in complete submission to him. Here's what the church can do for our world. We can be hopeful and honest at the exact same time. Hopeful and honest at the exact same time. Now, in this dynamic, it is really crucial we understand something. It's not as if there's the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness, and they're dueling it out for the world. No, no, understand, Jesus is truly in charge. He has finished the work. He is seated at the right hand of God. He is in complete control of all things. Through him, God is working all things, even the most awful things for good for his people and who are called according to his name and purpose. But the emphasis of the tension in verse eight, what's the emphasis on? Think of the verse again. We don't yet see though. God is in charge, he is in control, but let's be honest about our human experience. How often do we not see how this works for good? How often can we not perceive what is God up to in all of this rebellion and sin and evil? How could he ever use it for good? We don't yet see it from our limited perspective. But he's still in charge. This verse is telling you evil is real. And it cannot undermine Jesus' authority. And it's in this tension, in this tension, our faith and our confidence in Jesus can be so fragile, so shaken, and even silenced. Here's what I want you to know. So much of Christian faith is living in the gap between promises made 
and promises kept. Promises made and promises kept. We are waiting on God so often to come through, but here's the human experience. I'm waiting on God, I'm trying to obey God, but I don't see him. I know he promised he'll never leave me or forsake me, but I don't sense him. We feel this tension acutely when we see God's promises in light of the evil in the world and the corruption in us. Like God has made these incredible promises of that he's good, that he's in charge, that his steadfast love endures forever. But then what do we see? What do we see? We see evil. We see suffering. We see death running rampant. We see cancer take out the absolute best among us. We see evil go unchecked. We see innocent people gobbled up. And we see our tears just keep flowing here. We look for him in the darkness, but we can't seem to find him. Right? God has made these promises to his people about forgiveness for our sin and our power to overcome sin. But what do we see? I just keep failing in all the same old ways. I keep failing in all the same old sins. You keep failing in all the same old sins. You make promises, you make plans, and you just keep failing. The struggle doesn't seem to go away. And if we're honest, deep down in so many of us, we have this thought of, I'm never going to change anyway. Like even for the most mature Christian in this room, the shame and guilt of your sin can feel so much more real than the love and grace of God. We look for him in our despairing moments and how often we just can't seem to grab hold of him. He slips through our fingers when we're lost in this darkness and God has made promises He's made all these promises. You've read them in the Bible before about his superior delight and life to the full found in him. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. I came to give you life. But then what do we see? What do we experience? How often do we hear about God? And if we were honest, we would say how bored we are. How often we can sit in services and Bible studies and all the other things and we can even read the Bible and just our heart, nothing happens. We're apathetic. We don't seem to get excited or joyful. But it's not because we don't have the capacity for those things. If we're honest, our joy and our excitement and our passions, they come out through things like work or family or friends or hobbies. And God seems to be, I should, but I don't feel that. We come to God with our passions and all these promises that he's made and we can't seem to find satisfaction. Promises made and promises kept, and we live in between so often. All of us have had those experiences, and hear me, you will have those moments, but this verse is meant to free us up to make sense of it. It's not that Jesus has failed you. Satan's going to whisper inaudibly into your soul, as soon as there's a gap between promises made and promises kept, for a millisecond you're gonna go, well, if he didn't show up immediately, then he'll never show up. If it didn't make me happy immediately, then it'll never make me happy. He'll never be for me. It's not that Jesus has failed you, nor, nor is it you aren't flailing around in the darkness. 
nor is it you're not grasping for faith and barely hanging on. His presence and his promises are true, but for now we only see them in part because not everything is subject to him in the way it will be one day. And so when we go through these times of great struggle, of great stress, of great sorrow and despair, here's what we all do. We look for solutions. We scour the internet, we Google, we try to figure out, we attend church more frequently when we're going through tough times. We read the Bible more, we read books more, we find a podcast, we try to do everything we can, we try new things because we want God to give us answers. God, tell us what to do. Just tell me what to do and I'll do it. Tell me why this is happening. Explain the suffering to me. Explain the sorrows, explain the waywardness, explain my apathy. The tension is just too much and we beg him to speak and how often have you begged God to speak and if you're honest, he seems so quiet. He seems so quiet. And in that waiting, your faith begins to flicker in the tension of the Christian faith. Which brings us to the third point, the fitting resolution. Look at this tension, verse eight. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but what do we see? But we see him. As we're assaulted by all that is not submitted to Jesus perfectly in us and in this world, what do we see? We see him. We see him. When we cry out for God, to God, to explain to us what's happening, explain to me what I'm longing for, and God, he answers your cries, but it's not to unpack every single detail of every situation. He answers you and me with the glory and suffering and death and perfection of Jesus. And while you haven't seen him with your physical eyes, we have the historical records passed down to us of who he is. And the Holy Spirit of God gives us faith to believe in him, follow him, experience his presence here today. Because I want to tell you something. If you spend, and this is what we do, if you spend all of your time playing detective of your life and trying to make sense of every single situation, trying to make sense of every pain and sorrow and confusion and question and failure, it's good to be introspective. It's good to think about your life. But eventually, if that's all that you do, if you just play detective and try to sort through what are the threads and what are the patterns and how do I fix it, eventually you're going to be left wanting because until you see him, until you focus on him, until you meditate on him, no amount of information will be enough for you. We live in the information age. How are we doing? You've never known more. We've never known more, and we've never been less happy. It's not an amount of information that will calm your heart. Verse 9 says, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. And what do we see? Crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. We see him, leave that verse up. We see him a little while made lower than the angels. He became like you. He wrapped himself in flesh because he wants to know what you feel. He could have read a book about your life. He wrote the book about your life, but there's a different experience of living in your skin and your experiences. And Jesus came and he did that for us. 
to know our story and to not sin. We see him crowned with glory and honor. But why is he crowned? Why is he over everyone? Because he suffered. He isn't crowned. Think about his glory. He's not crowned because of great displays of strength and glory and might. He is crowned because of the depth of his suffering. He is crowned because of his service to you and me. He is crowned because of how deep his sorrows went for us. So much so, what does it say? He tastes, what a, what a metaphor. He tasted death for us. He drank the cup to the full. It sincerely is, I hope you understand this, it is the death and resurrection of Jesus alone that can truly make sense of your story. It's the suffering and glory of Jesus alone that can keep you and lead you and save you. Because I want you to know as evil and injustice and sorrow in our lives, it is attempting to drag your faith into a withering posture. When it's dragging your faith down and you don't see things in subjection to him, what do we see? The cross of Jesus. And in the cross of Jesus, you have a God who suffered with you. God who suffered for you, God who suffered like you. God does not come with promises to the world as one who hasn't suffered. He comes with promises to the world as the one who suffered most. There's such comfort in his sorrow. His sorrows tell you he hates the things that plague us. And the way he dealt with them was not to shout them away, but to take them on himself, to take away their curse, to take away their judgment. He has this empty tomb that now promises you and promises me everything you'll lose here and you eventually lose everything here. There's no loss here that will not be used by him that will not give you eternal glory in life. There's an empty tomb that proves it. As our sins and our shames, as they want to they drag our faith down into fear and sheepishness, what do we do? We see him. We look at the cross of Jesus. That's the payment for our wrongs. That's the healing for our wounds. So often when you're in shame and guilt, grace seems too easy, doesn't it? It seems too easy. I'm just forgiven. I just confess my sins and I'm forgiven. That's it. That feels too easy. Let me do 10 push-ups and read a Bible study. Let me do something to feel like I'm contributing. No, it's not easy. It's just easy for you. It wasn't easy for him. Grace only feels easy because someone else paid. And we look at the cross and we go, no, grace is not cheap. That's what it costs for me. And now I can know because of his resurrection, his empty tomb is more sure than my feelings of guilt. My feelings of guilt don't have any say-so over someone who's resurrected. And his resurrection says, I'm clean, I'm forgiven, and I don't have to do anything else today to make up for it. And as boredom and dullness attempt to slowly erode our faith and pleasures in the world begin to erode our faith and push it to the margins of our lives, we look and we see him on the cross as the greatest act of love and most thrilling display of glory you could ever imagine. You look at the cross, you see him, you know what he gives you? He gives you life and meaning and identity and purpose that you can't, it can't be taken from you. Your career will be taken from you. It can't satisfy you. It can't give you anything. It can't give you a name that will last, but Jesus can. He gives you a title that won't be taken from you. You don't retire from. 
And you don't have to keep up the effort to maintain. No, he gives you a kingdom that we get to be a part of building something here that will genuinely outlast every other name. We get to be a part of mending what's broken here to get ready for the greatest adventure of your life. Do you want to know what it is? It's not your retirement. It's not a vacation. It's not a trip. The greatest adventure of your life will be when you're resurrected to get to explore the heavens and earth with Jesus. That's the greatest adventure waiting for you and waiting for me. Verse 10, for it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons and daughters to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. It was fitting. It was fitting because we were stuck in sin and our suffering with no way to make sense of it and no way to get out of it. But here's why it was fitting. It was fitting because there is no place in history where God seemed more absent than the cross of Jesus. There's no place in history, though there's awful stories and realities that have happened throughout history, but the place where it was darkest was the cross. Why? The Son of God, what does he cry out? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, it seems like, what is God doing? What is he up to? What could he accomplish? What good could come from this? And yet today, and yet today, The cross is the place where we see the heart and presence of God most fully put on display. The place where God seemed most absent truly was where he was most present. It will take eternity for us in Christ to understand the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the love and the mercy and the justice displayed on the cross. And that's the promise for you. That's the hope for you. When you have those seasons, you have that tension, and you go, God, where are you? God, I don't see you. What are you doing? I'm too weak. I'm too confused. I don't see you active in this world. I don't see you in my circumstances. The Psalms are filled with people writing poetry going, God, where are you? But what does verse 9 tell us? But we see him. We see him crowned with glory because of what he suffered. You see, the church, we pray, we sing, we obey God's word, we confess our sins, we Sabbath, we work, we love, all of it, all those things we do, not for its own sake. We do all those things because all those things lead us to him. All those things orient our life and our hearts towards him. And you may not, listen, the older you get and the longer you follow Jesus, Sometimes life can make less sense and it's harder to make sense of all the things that are happening and all the sorrows that overtake us and we may not understand anything else about our lives but here's the thing, when you see him clearly, you'll finally figure out, oh, he's enough. He's enough to make sense of the tension that I'm in. But we see him crowned with glory and honor because of what he suffered. Let's pray. Father, the amount of varied circumstance and situations and sufferings and losses and questions and concerns and sorrows and joys and dreams and ambitions that are represented in this room, God, is more than any of us could really understand. 
God, I pray that as we experience this tension of faith on promises made and promises kept, God, that you would help us see Jesus, to see him as the solution to this tension where we don't understand anything, that if we see him, that'll be enough. God, help us approach you with confidence because of what Jesus has done and who he is. God, meet us in our suffering, meet us in our questions, meet us in our longings, meet us in our ambitions and our passions. God, show us you are truly the one we're looking for. Teach us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.